And as I begin, I would like to ask uh, in prayer that the Lord be with us and that he help me as I preach. Holy Father, we now ask to open the hearts of your people, open their ears. May all who have ears to hear, may they hear. May their hearts understand. May they taste and see that you are good, that your kindness and abounding grace has given us the truth that our Christ has taken the keys of death and the grave, and he has conquered death for us. He's taken its sting away. He's fulfilled the demands of the law, the strength of the law. And so, Father, we pray, give us now this courage to live for your glory, because we know our souls are safely in your hands. We know that this life, all of us, will find death one day, if you do not come back and we meet you in the air. We know, Lord, that these things must be done. So, Father, help us to live our lives to your glory. May they be poured out as a drink offering. May they be consumed on the altar. May they be raised up to you and bring you glory. Enable us, Father, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. May he be lifted up today. May eyes be cast upon him. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is a very difficult book for me to preach through. I had never really planned on preaching through the book of the, of the Apocalypse because I, didn't get, I did not believe that I had sufficient knowledge of it and the sufficient wisdom to make all the things in it known. And I have proven that to be true in my own life. I do not have that. But there are certain things in the book that are easy to understand, and therefore I'm here to point out the easy things. For us, we know that there is a battle for your soul, and there is a battle on this earth. And Christ wins. He is winning now, and he will win in the future. These are the things that we know for sure. I want to encourage you to study your Bible, to study this book, to have your hearts rest in Christ. What I'm about to preach today is not going to be easy to hear. It's going to have some bad news in it. Now, I've, I've listened to several messages and I've read several books and I've been studying and I've been thinking about what I was about to say today, but for the most part, uh, Joel Beakey, one of the people I do read and, and study, he said this about this particular chapter, chapter 13. Chapter 13 happens to be the most difficult chapter in the most difficult book. And therefore, we're looking at some things that I may say, I think this is what's going on, and in my opinion. But there are other things that I'll be saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is where you need to set your anchor and do not move. And with that, let me tell you what I want you to take away today. The doctrine is this. The Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist will wage war with the people of God. That is the truth. We are called to be faithful to the very end, to the very end of our lives. If we are alive when Christ comes back, what a glorious thing that would be. 
but that might not be the case. We may find ourselves dying a natural death or even an unnatural death, but we need to seek out the wisdom that is put into this book. We need the encouragement of knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly in control. He is a sovereign sitting on a throne on the right hand of God, and he is going to save every soul that puts their trust in him. Amen. There is no doubt. This is something that we can take away. This is thus says the Lord. We can rest in Christ. Now that means that the bad news is not going to be so bad. Do you see? God is going to tell us the bad news. It'll be like our brother when he was preaching and he said, The Lord told us beforehand, Behold, I have told you beforehand, so that when it happens, you might believe. And so here we are. Let me give you a very brief review before we get into the new material. There are approximately, I say approximately because it depends on how you look at the book, seven visions given to us in the Apocalypse. And each one of these visions is something that the Apostle John saw and relates in this book. And the vision goes from the time of the ascension of Christ to the time of his return. Each vision gives you that story. And it's from a different viewpoint. Every one of them from a different viewpoint. The very first vision, we saw a vision of Christ walking among his churches. What a beautiful vision that was. His face was shining like the sun in its full strength. His eyes were flames of fire, feet of brass, and he walked among his people. And I'm telling you, he walks among us now. Of all his churches, from the beginning of the ascension to the time when he comes back, he walks among us. And this was a vision of the church, that is, of Christ's revelation, the apocalypse, of Christ among his people on the earth, in the church. The second vision, we saw a throne where the one who sat on the throne was surrounded. He was the center. The throne of God was the center of all things. And he was surrounded by four living creatures and 24 seats where the elders sat. And all these worshipped God. And when we saw a vision of everything that happened from the ascension of Christ to the second coming, in heaven, from that perspective, we could see that there was one that stood between all those around the throne and the throne itself. The one that stood between was the Lamb. He was announced this way. Here is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looked, he saw the Lamb slain. And he is the one that approached the throne, given a scroll, sealed with seven seals. And he was the only one that could open it. A sound was said, Who is worthy to open it? And there is only one. The one who had been slain from the foundation of the world. He opened it. And then all of God's decreed actions were authorized to happen. And it could only have been done by the one who could deal with sin. And who is that? The one slain. God deals with the sin of this world because he died for our sin and raised by his own holiness. And therefore he can use the sin in this world any way he wishes to, to bring about glory for himself. The third vision is where the seven trumpets were announced. And this is the vision of the apocalypse from the ascension of Christ to the second coming of Christ from the, from the viewpoint of the dwellers or those on the earth, those that dwell on the earth. And we saw great announcements, great judgments. 
these things happening so that we could see how God is dealing with this world. Now we are in the fourth vision. We are in the center of the fourth vision. The fourth vision goes from chapter 12 to chapter 14. And we are now looking at chapter 13 today. And so last week, or the last time I preached this to you, we looked at a vision of a great woman who had a crown with 12 stars. And she had the moon beneath her feet. But she was clothed with the sun. And she was great with child. And she was going to present what child? Christ, of course. But the dragon was there, ready to do what? To devour this child. And as soon as this child was born, he ascended up and sat on the right hand of God. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels declared war on the one who stood before the throne, accusing those who trust God. Why? Why was he there? Why was he pleading about the holiness of God against those that trust in God? Because there was no atonement. But as soon as Christ died and ascended, there is atonement. And he was cast out, thrown down to the earth. And Christ now sits and has the authority to rule with this sin. Now they no longer looked forward to it. Now we look back. Now we can say, it has been done. It is finished. And Christ deals with this world based upon the fact that he is the one slain from the foundations of the world. So now we go into chapter 13. This is a very difficult part. But if you recall from last time, in chapter 12, there was a voice that sounded in heaven. And he said, Oh, what joy should be in the heavens that this has been accomplished, that Christ should be ascended and sit at the right hand of God. What joy there is in heaven. However... Woe to those who dwell on the earth and on the sea. Now, isn't that interesting that this voice should say, Woe to those that dwell on the earth and on the sea. Because now we have that dragon, that great dragon that was there ready to consume our Christ with his seven heads, with the names of blasphemies upon his head, and with ten crowns. That same dragon is now going to be standing on the shore and he's going to have a beast rise up out of the earth and out of the sea. Now, before we get to the verse by verse and make sure we do not, we do not miss anything, there is a little bit of a caveat I want to go over with you. I don't normally do this. I don't usually say, oh, let's compare this version with that version and, and kind of, but this is a little bit different. I was raised with the KJV, the King James Version. I think it's a very good version. But later in life, I, I became accustomed to the uh, English Standard Version. And I noticed that in this particular case, between chapters 12 and chapter 13, there's a slight little difference that I want to point out to you. The words are the same, but as you know, the division of chapters are man-made. We have said, this seems to make sense if we cut this off and start a new chapter here. There is a phrase that is kept in chapter 12, and not put in chapter 13 between these two verses. And let me just make that distinction. In the, in the ESV, we read from chapter 12, verse 17, this. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. You remember we had it, the very last verse of that chapter. And the last phrase is this. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, in the King James, 
this phrase, and he stood on the sand of the sea, is included with the idea in chapter 13 where John is being presented as standing on the sand of the sea. But if you put that phrase in chapter 12, we see the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. And you may say, well, what difference does that make? Well, if you look at the content, it really is a distinction that makes no difference at all. However, the ESV view of this, they're both translated correctly because you see there is no article that says who is the subject of that phrase. Was it John or was it the dragon? But if we go with the ESV, it works like this. The dragon now is standing upon the sea and on the earth. Now, does that remind you of any situation? And I'll put it to you like this. Martin Luther once said that Satan is God's ape. You know what that means? Satan has a way of mimicking God. He wants to be like God, and he does the things that God does. Now, in chapter 10, verse 1, we read this about a mighty angel coming down. And this angel is exactly like Christ. And as a matter, in my opinion, I believe this was Christ. Let me read these two verses to you. And I saw another angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his, set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And then he, made, he goes on to proclaim that he has seven thunders, and so on. Now this is how God presents Christ, coming in and says, I have the gospel and the word of God, and I stand with one foot here and one foot here. The sea and the land. But now we have the dragon doing the very same thing. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, those that dwell in the sea and in the earth. And here we have the dragon standing in that very same place. I would say that this is consistent with the way the devil and Satan is depicted in the apocalypse. I want you to consider this. This is my opinion. Okay, recognize the phrase. This is my opinion concerning the beast that we're going to see come up out of the sea and the beast that comes up out of the land, out of the earth, it says. One is going to be the Antichrist and the other is going to be the false prophet. Now, the sea is many times representative of a mass of humanity. Do you remember the vision of how the throne in heaven had to... Uh, the elders sit around it. Do you know what was before the throne? A sea of glass. You know, when I think of a sea of glass, I think of the time when I was fishing and it was so calm, even a tiny insect could land on it and you could see the ripples, you could see what happens. There's nothing like a sea of glass that gives you the idea that there's calm and tranquility. God's people are calm and tranquil in the presence of God. But the wicked are like an ocean that foams, that beats upon the shore, that stirs up the mire and the muck. And out of the sea is going to rise up an institution or those who have authority to rule the earth. And Satan is going to be there to bring it up. And on the other hand, you're going to see another beast rise up out of the earth. This beast is going to support the other beast. The beast that has the idea that, well, let's talk about the wisdom that the world has to offer. Let's talk about the religions. 
Let's talk about the philosophies. Let's talk about those who don't even believe that there is a God. Let's talk about those who have their own faiths and ideas of who God is. All the worldly wisdom is going to give its credence and stamp of approval to the beast who has authority to tell the world how to live. And these are human governments. This is the way Satan is going to rule this world. He gives these governments to whom he will. That's what he offered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone or any of these things, but by the very word of God. So we see these two things, and they are most likely, in my opinion, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Let's go on to go verse by verse. Verse number one of chapter 13, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems and on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to say that these numbers, I suppose we could go to the history books and take a look and see if there are seven kings or seven kingdoms or ten kingdoms and so on. But rather than do that, let's take a look at the idea that these numbers have always represented concepts. The idea that there are seven spirits of God going throughout the earth means that God all of God's spirit, everything about him, all his attributes, everything that we can conceive of, of who God is, is going throughout the world. And this number means a completeness. A completeness. And then the ten. Every time we see this number ten, it seems to go from the beginning to the end. From the beginning to the end. And so when we see a beast with seven heads and ten horns, it seems to imply that Satan has been given the authority to rule this earth all of its kings, all of its leaders, and they will have control and authority to do what, what the dragon wants them to do from the ascension of Christ to the coming of Christ. They've been given that authority by the one who sits on the throne. And this is part of the bad news, folks, that God has been given authority to the devil to give authority to the Antichrist that he might be authorized by the false prophet to make your life miserable, to attack you, to persecute you, because Christ is sitting on the throne, and now Satan is making war with the seed of the church, you. So there are diadems, and if you don't know what that means, it just means that there are like rules and encrusted rubies that are put into a ring placed upon a head. It's a crown. It's a crown placed upon, in this case, upon the horns. Now, if you didn't recall, and if you didn't figure this out, the dragon that was ready to consume the child had seven heads, and their crowns were upon the heads. Now, in this case, we have seven heads, but the crowns are upon the horns. Now, I'm just going to tell you, this is my opinion. Have you ever heard the phrase, you mess with the bull, you get the horns? You know, the idea there? It seems that the horns represent the idea that there is the power to execute the authority given. It's one thing to have Congress pass a bill concerning tax, and it's another thing to have a tax collector show up on your door and say, I'm going to take your car or your money. Which one? Do you see the difference between the authority and the power to do so? What we have here are horns. That means they have the ability to make you comply. But the heads are, they have been given authority to tell you to do so. There is a difference. But we have to see that it is complete, and that it goes from the beginning to the end of this period of time. And we're going to see, well, how long is that? Well, we'll get there. 
42 months, of course. I'll give you the, I'll give you the answer. 42 months. The beast that he saw was like a leopard. His feet were like of a bear. His mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, this particular description of a beast is just one animal. But it's kind of a combination of different animals. Now, if you've read through the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7, there is a vision given to Daniel concerning uh, governments that were there at that time, such as Nebuchadnezzar, and after him, now Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon, of course, after that the Medes and the Persians, after that the Greeks and then the Romans. Now the animals that were presented in his dream, leopard, bear, lion, they all represented these kingdoms because it, it frankly just tells you so. It's not a mystery to us. However, this particular beast is a combination of these three animals put into one. But there is a description of the last animal in Daniel 7 that's not included in this. But let me read that description to you, the one that represents the Roman Empire, in my opinion. Daniel 7, 7 reads this. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different than all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I believe that this is the type of beast we're dealing with here, the type of beast that has been given authority to rule over this earth, and that it's ten. It goes from beginning to end. It doesn't end. It's not like the leopard that, start, that comes up and then it stops. It's not like the lion that comes up and stops, or the bear. But it has the strength of these animals. It has the ability to be agile, to be strong, to seek its prey, to take its paw, and to destroy, and to take its mouth, and to devour. It has these type of horns. It has these type of authority to go and to do these things in the name of the one who sent it and brought it up, which is the dragon or the devil himself. So the government is going to be considered, in my opinion, the great Antichrist. Now, why would I say something like that? Well, let's just see what the Antichrist is. The Apostle John is the one who penned the Apocalypse. Let's see what he says in his epistles concerning the Antichrist. In 1 John and in 2 John, we read these verses. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Who is, a, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. And who denies the Father and the Son? And every spirit, now this is from a different uh, chapter, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist. Which of you heard what's coming and now is in the world already? And in the second epistle, the first chapter. For many deceivers are gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such as one is a deceiver and antichrist. Now, the spirit of antichrist has to do with this. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. He is not God. He did not die for your sins. And this is the official ideology and teaching and position of people who have authority to say, this is what you need to believe. This is what you need to observe. 
And if you do this, you will be punished. And what do governments look like that do that? They cause the gospel to become hate speech. That type of thing. We'll get into that a little bit later. Let's go on to verse number 3 and 4. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound, mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Well, I want to consider two things here. Number one, what is the mortal wound, and what does it mean? Now this again, I'm going to have to say this is my opinion. And the other thing we want to consider is the universal worship of the beast. Just what does it look like? So let's go with the first one, the mortal wound. What is it? Well, I would say this. We would have to see the perspective of what this uh, mortal wound looks like. You see, when Satan or the dragon gives us authority to this beast, he gives him the heads and the horns. These are against Christ. And if there is one that has been wounded, then this one particular government is no longer against Christ. This particular head has been wounded by a sword. And who has the sword coming out of his mouth? It is Christ himself and those who preach the gospel. And so if there is a government that protects Christianity, if there is a place where people can say, this government doesn't kill God's people, this government allows people to worship the Lord, well then I would say, according to the beast, there is one head that isn't quite effective. He is wounded by the sword. That's my opinion, folks. However, this wound was healed. Now, when a wound is healed, what does that mean in this respect? Perhaps the wound no longer is going to protect the Christian. This nation in particular, we have been a refuge for places for Christians. Christians came here to escape persecution. But now, now we face a wounded head that is becoming healed again. That's my opinion. The worship of the beast. When governments increase their war against Christ, they are engaged in the worship of the dragon. When they take upon themselves the ideology, the worldly wisdom, that Christianity is harming society. I told you this many times when I was a young man and took a psychology class. The professor came into class and he, on the very first day, on the very first of that class, he said, I want to tell you that Christianity has been the monkey on the back of humanity forever. And he was there to help fix that. That is the spirit of Antichrist. And that is the spirit of a false prophet giving credence to a government that supports that. That is what we have to deal with. And that is the enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. Laws can be enacted against biblical principles. Laws can be created that makes the gospel become hate speech because preaching against sin is not very kind to those who believe that they're only exercising their rights. But they, we must preach against sin that is ungodly. People will become targets of authorities, of atheists, false religions, humanisms. Those are all things that has to do with the worldly wisdoms that the false prophet is going to say, the beast has the authority to fix these problems. And where is the problem? 
It is the one that says God has come in the flesh to die for sins. That's the one that must be done away with. These reasons show us that when the world worships the beast, they are promoting this attack against Christ. Now, why do you think the description of worship is included with this phrase? Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Doesn't that sound familiar to you? It is common in our prayers on Wednesday night that we try to glorify God in our prayers. To begin with, we try to say, let's clear our minds, let's approach the Lord, say that he is God, let's praise him. And a common scripture from Isaiah is usually quoted. We say, there is none like our God, there is none beside him, none can compare to the Lord who is like you. There is a song written by Moses in Exodus chapter 15. I'd like to read some of that to you. The enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill on them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and, they have, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now do you see Satan, being God's ape, wants that kind of praise? Oh, who can go up against the beast? Who can make war with him? He loves having followers of that type. But let me read one more passage before I go on to the next verse. The prophet Micah said this, Who is like you? Does that sound familiar? Who is like you? Now listen. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, forever because he delights in steadfast love. That is not the description of the beast. Who is like this beast and who can, who can defeat him? So you better bow down to this beast. But who is like our God, a loving and forgiving God? A God that overcomes death for us. Let's go to verse number five and six. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now we see that this is two verses that describe the very nature of Antichrist. That even the heads have the name that has blasphemies on them. Blasphemies. They speak against God. Now every time we learn about God, God will give us some inside information about who he is. He gives us a name. He gives us the name Jehovah, he gives us the name Yahweh, he gives us the name of all the, all the different representations of God who preserves, the God who loves. Now, whenever God's name is blasphemed, he is, his nature is being attacked. The very nature of who he is. And this beast is blaspheming the very character and nature of who he is. The holy God. And those who follow him, those in heaven who surround the throne, that is who the beast is blaspheming. 
but I want you to understand, he not only blasphemes God and those who are in heaven, but the next verse is going to tell us that he also will attack those who are on the earth. But let's consider the amount of time. It was allowed to exercise his authority 42 months. And we have already seen in our studies that this 42 months, which is three and a half years, which is also 1,260 days, is the time from the ascension to the return. This is the same time that Elijah was allowed to shut up the heavens. This is the same time that he was in the wilderness. This is the same time that in 42 encampments that the children of Israel was in the wilderness. This is the time that begins and ends from the ascension to the return of Christ. And we say, why does it do this 42 months in some places and three and a half years in other places and 1,260 days in other places? Well, I don't understand. Why don't we just keep this one number? Well, it has to do with this. You remember when the children, I mean, when the church was driven into the wilderness, when God gave the church two wings to escape the persecution of the dragon, and they were receiving nourishment for 1,260 days. Now that means it's three and a half years, but you see, this is a blessing that happened every single day. It happened all the time. God is going to nourish us all the time. But when it comes to this beast who has been given authority to blaspheme God, it's not every day, it's every month. It's like that bill you pay. If you had to pay your rent every day, that would be a pain, wouldn't it? That would be awful. But God has not given the beast to do this every day. He gives him once a month for three and a half years for the entire time. And so we see that God's hand is limiting what the devil can do. He limits what Satan can do. Some people will say, he doesn't look like he's limited to me. Well, you haven't compared him to the past, have you? Have you ever walked through a neighborhood and noticed, you know, now, we don't do this anymore, but in, when I was a child, people had dogs that just ran around the neighborhood, you know, because your dogs went into the woods and they hunted and things. Now, now you, you know, dogs have to be kept on a leash and they're not, not, not allowed to be dogs anymore. But if, a, but if a neighbor had a dog that was designed to keep their property safe, it's usually a dog that would bark whenever you came by and they would have that dog on a chain and that dog would have a little house and you knew how far you could get to it. You know why? Because there would be just dirt in a, in, a, in a circle where that chain was. And you, all you had to do is stay in the grass. That dog couldn't get to you. You knew how far the dog could go. I'm telling you, God is telling us how far Satan can go. We don't have to tempt him, but we know that we are safe. That is, our souls are safe from the jaws of the dragon, from this beast from the lion, from the leopard, from all these things that the governments are trying to do and will do to God's people. Our souls are safe. But the bad news is coming, folks, and I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to it, but the bad news is this. Death is coming. We are going to be conquered, but it's only our bodies. It's only our lives here. We have to get over the fact and think that Everything that's happy about a Christian life is what we get out of this life. No, it's not. It is not. You're not going to have your best life now. This is not it. You're not going to have the good things in life because the good things are in Christ. He has given us courage to be Christians 
Because God has conquered the grave for us. We can be Christians now. We can live for the glory of God in the light of being persecuted, in the light of being hunted. We'll be rambling in caves. We'll be pushed around. We'll have no place to hide. But we have nourishment from God. I'm telling you, I can't get to where I really want to get to because you need to hear this. I mean, you'll just have to come back, you know, next week. But I want you to, to listen to how God puts this. And I'm going to read it to you before we leave, and then I'll explain it next week. Let's go to verses 7 and 8. It was allowed to make war upon the saints and to conquer them. That's the bad news, isn't it? And the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and tongue. And so we can see... God says, I have told you beforehand so that when you see it, you might believe. We know that we are going to be persecuted. We know that the governments of this world, that the principalities and powers that are in high places in this present evil world are designed against the church of Christ. And all those that dwell on the earth are going to worship this beast whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, I want you to understand certain things. There are two lines. There's a line with two sides here. We have the saints, the citizens of heaven, and we have the wicked or those that dwell upon the earth. Those who are citizens of heaven will be conquered but our names are written in the book of life. Those who dwell on the earth, they're going to be worshiping the beast and the dragon that is behind the beast. They will have in their own minds and done by their own hands, please listen to my words, what is on their foreheads and in their hearts and minds, they will agree with the ideology and the goals and the aspirations of the beast. And you can tell by what they do with their hands. And they will have the same names of blasphemies that we'll see at the end of this chapter, the mark or the mark of ownership. They will have in their hearts and minds, on their heads and in their hands, that type of mark of ownership because on this beast, the heads have the names of blasphemy on them. Now we get to the point where this is, this is the hardest part right here. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Chav, verse 10. And this is what you're supposed to hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Now those are very... I used, to, I used to read it in such a way that I did not want this to mean that I could be taken to captivity, that I could be slain. That it's more like this. If I, don't take, if I don't put people in captivity, I won't be taken captive. If I don't kill with the sword, then I won't be killed with the sword. It's not like that, folks. This, these are scriptures. This, these particular phrases are taken right out of the prophet's Jeremiah's mouth. Prophet, the prophet Jeremiah uses these words. And the words in the context are not good news. And what I mean by that is that it is good news 
but it's bad news for those that think their best life is now. <laughs> you know, but it's good news for those who listened to the testimony, who went through and were taken captive, who were killed by pestilence, who were killed, who were slain, and so on. I'm going to take a little bit of more time. I hope you don't mind. But listen to, listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 15. Listen to these. Now this is, this is when Jeremiah was asking the Lord, Have you forsaken Judah? Because Judah is about to be decimated. And the answer is this. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, Yet my mind could not, my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Now, you see, let me give you an explanation of that. Just because it was Moses and Samuel there, which I, whom I love, I'm not going to spare them for their sake. Next. And it shall come to pass if they say to thee, Whither shall we go forth? You know, what's going to happen to us? Then... Thou shalt tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death, to death. You know what he means? I have a decree that there will be some people that are going to be destined for death, and you know what's going to happen to them? They will die. And such as for the sword, to the sword. If I have determined that they shall be killed by the sword, that's what's going to happen. And as for famine, to the famine. If I determine that they will, be, they will be starved to death, they will be starved to death. Such as for captivity, to captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds, says the Lord. Number one, the sword to slay. Number two, the dogs to tear. Number three, the fowls of heaven. Number four, the beasts of the earth. And what do they do? Devour and destroy. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth, because Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for which he did in Jerusalem. Now he's saying this, because of that sin, my people are going to endure these things. And you may say, why? There's a good reason, folks, and we're getting there. The good reason. We're going to go through great tribulation, but God has a good reason. Let's go to Jeremiah 43, and I want to read some words to you. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah... And Talphahes, and this is what he says. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is in the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Talphahes. Now you know what he's saying here. He's saying, this is a vision. This is an image. This is not literally true. This is pictorially true. This is, he's saying that you could take with your hands, take a stone and put it someplace because I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and build his temple there. He says, and saying to them, Thus said the Lord of hosts of God of Israel, Behold, I send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon those stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. Do you know what the Lord is doing here? The Lord has secretly said, I'm going to establish this wicked king to come and punish this wicked king, and they, nobody will be able to see it. Nobody will be able to see that I am the one that's making this happen. What holds him up cannot be seen. His kingdom is built upon a foundation that I have put there. This is the work of God. This is the hand of God controlling the world. And he shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to pestilence those who are doomed to pestilence. Does that sound familiar? 
Does that sound familiar to you? And to captivity, those who are doomed to captivity. And to the sword, those who are doomed to the sword. Whatever I have determined, that's what's going to happen. And I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away in peace. Now that's Babylon taking care of Egypt in the providence and power of God. Now we're going to get to the place where I wanted to get to. In Ezekiel, we read this. Now, this is where you have to pay attention. Please don't let your imagination on your word and your thinking slide down. The word of the Lord, this is from Ezekiel, came to me. Son of man, when the land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from it, man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. You know what he's saying? I'm not going to spare the land because these three of my people are there. They will stand on their own. God's gift to them and the righteousness of Christ shall preserve their souls. But everyone else, if the sword, the sword. If death, death. If pestilence, pestilence. God is bringing judgment and he's giving the authority to the Antichrist to do this. And if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beast, even if these three men were in it, you know, Noah, and Daniel, and Job, even if they were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would, they, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. It's only their own souls. They will, it'll not be like Abraham saying, if, if, if Sodom is going to be destroyed, if there's only ten there, and the Lord will say, oh, for the sake of ten, I won't destroy. This is not the case now. It is not the case now. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let the sword pass through the land, and I cut it off from man and beast. Though these three men were in it, that's Noah, Daniel, and Job, as I live, declares the Lord, they would not deliver their sons or daughters, but they alone will be delivered. Or if I send pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood and cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Now we're getting to the good part, folks, so please stay with me. For the Lord says, the, for, for thus says the Lord God, How much more will I send upon Jerusalem in the four disasters, acts of judgment, sword, famine, and beast, and pestilence, to cut off it uh, from man and beast? Behold, behold, some survivors will be left in it. Now listen. Some survivors will be left in it. Sons and daughters who will be brought out. Now, these are not sons and daughters that are saved for the sake of someone else's faith. These are the Job's and the Daniels, and the Noahs. They will survive. Their souls will survive. You will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. And how will they be consoled? These will be the witnesses. The Daniels, the Jobs, the Noahs will console us and say, they have been saved. Consider who these men are. Noah, the one who built an ark because God's judgment was coming to destroy the earth. 
Daniel, who was taken captive, who prays every day to God for his, for his beloved country, and yet he is a captive. And Job, the one who excuses evil, the one who loves God, and yet he witnesses the death of his family and all that he has. These are the ones that witness to us to console us. They are consoling us. And this is what he says. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. Do you read about these heroes of the faith that we have been given examples to live through this great tribulation? And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. Do you see? He says, I have not done this without a cause. I have good reason. I have good reason to let this beast terrorize us. God is on his throne. Let us live to the glory of God. Though he slay us, yet will we trust in him. This is the message that we read in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where we are going to be persecuted to death, but our souls are safe in the hands of God. They are safe in Christ, and we can live to his glory, even though the beast will destroy us. And that's what he wants us to do, to stand up, to stand up. Now, I'm not going to get into the practical application, but I will do this one thing. People are going to say, well, what should I do? Should I, should I have a revolution? Should we re revolt against the government? No, 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 no. Romans chapter 13 says, be in subjection. Be in subjection. As a matter of fact, let me just kind of give you the idea. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, but also for conscience sake. We read that in Romans chapter 13. Be in subjection to the powers that be. But let me tell you what happened in the temple after Christ was crucified. The disciples were arrested, put into prison, and they were released. They went right back into the temple and they preached. And the apostle Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And so what do you do? You obey the government when it does not conflict with what God says. That's our position. We are not worldly warriors. We are spiritual warriors. We stand up for the virtue of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they kill us, they kill us. That's the bad news. But the good news is we are safe in the hands of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we now ask that you be with your people. Give us the confidence, the knowledge that our souls are safe, that we are in Christ, that there is nothing to fear, but you have given us great opportunity to live for your glory, great opportunity to stand like Daniel, to be like Job, to be like Noah. They have given us counsel. They have given us hope that we too will be helped by your spirit, that the gospel will embolden us, enable us to live for your glory. Oh, Lord Jesus, if only the world could see your beauty and how that you have been authorized because you died for our sins to rule over this sinful world, even the devil himself. We praise you, Lord, for there is none like you. There is none that can make war with you. There is none like you forgiving sins. There is none like you that abounds toward us in everlasting grace and love and kindness. So, Father, be with your people today. May the gospel be preached and sinners saved. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.